everybody. So we've decided to do periodic episodes that are not our regularly scheduled releases on Tuesdays and Fridays. We are going to bring these episodes to you when there are significant or noteworthy updates to cases we have covered or breaking news stories that we may not have covered. We found out very quickly that unless it's a case like Wesley Allen Dodd or the upcoming episode on the Night Stalker, cases that are long resolved, updates and case information can be released at any time, even when gag orders have been issued. Who knew? Right? Yeah. So like the evening before we released the first episode covering the Idaho four murders, um, news broke that identified who the 911 call was made by. Brie was actually able to jump on and add that update before the episode release, but it was literally hours before. Um, and since then, more information has come out, so we want to go over those updates. And this will be an easier way to also produce these updates instead of me crawling out of bed at midnight, <laughs> recording something really quickly, attaching it, and then getting back into bed after 1 a.m. So <laughs> I'd say let's get into it. Yeah. So, there have been reports that Brian Kohlberger's lawyer did not represent Zana's mother herself, but just her law firm represented her. So, this contradicts everything that Zana's mother had told Ashley Banfield. Uh, but a judge in the case reviewed the issue during a closed-door hearing and found that there were no conflicts. So, also, that lawyer has recently applied for and received permission to hire a second death penalty qualified lawyer to assist in the defense. Yeah, and who knows what it really means when they say no conflicts. Like, there could be some kind of law jargon that, yeah. you know, just permisses what went on to be not a conflict of interest. Like, he, she could have still been at the beginning of representing her, mm -hmm. the mother, and then, but it didn't go far enough to be considered a conflict. Right. And my big question was, if you watched, so for me, like I heard two separate interviews with Zana's mother on Banfield. The first one was like a, a telephone interview. And the second one was like a FaceTime call. Mm -hmm. And the language that she used, like she was talking about this lawyer in like the first person, like she had talked directly to her and this woman was helping her. And it sounded like that same lawyer had a direct relationship with Zander's mother's case. Yeah. So this information totally contradicts all of that. But if a judge has ruled there's no conflict, then, then I guess there's no legal conflict. I mm -hmm. still stand by there's a moral yeah, uh, dilemma sure. there. But anyways, um, there have also recently been over 60 documents unsealed by the court, included our search warrants for phone records, banking records, Tinder accounts, other social media, um, Amazon, Walmart, K-Bar, and a bunch of others, uh, searching for possibly recent purchases of the murder weapon. The one interesting thing is actually I heard on Friday morning, this past Friday morning, that more unsealed documents were set to be released. And that's actually one of the reasons why we pushed this recording a couple of days. It's because I sat on pins and needles waiting for more documents to be unsealed and nothing actually came of it. So um, this is what we have. So back to the social media. 
There was a lot of buzz online about this Tinder search warrant. People assumed that Kaylee might have went on a date with Brian Kohlberger and that he must be the one who disrespected her. So if you remember back on the documentary that a podcaster YouTuber made directly with the Gonsalves family, um, they told a story about shortly after Jack and Kaylee splitting up, Kaylee went on a date and she was so offended by this man because he called her a bitch. And her parents kind of thought that was a little strange. And her dad said, you know, over the years, you know, you get heated and you say things you don't mean. I've been known to call your mom a name here or there. And Kaylee said, well, not me. That's never happened to me. And none of them could believe, like, Jackson never called you a bitch. And she said, never. So anyways, this this instance of a man calling her a bitch on a date now people are saying that that must have been Brian because no other man on the planet would ever call a woman a bitch. But, you know. I would say that, like, I mean, if the family brought it up in a documentary specifically about the murders, it kind of gives me the sense that the family believes that there could be a connection there. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why people are running with it yep. as aggressively as they are. Oh, for sure. Um, and that documentary was actually made before Bryant was arrested, arrested. Mm -hmm. or even identified. So um, they were they were spitballing, they were brainstorming and speculating and trying mm -hmm. to figure out what had happened there. And they, I mean, they still are, like even so much as today, or it might have been yesterday, they released on the Consalvis family Facebook page, um, that they're still investigating themselves, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? And they're still looking for their own answers. Yeah. Um, even though the gag order's in place, all that means is they can't talk about what they're finding, but they are still actively investigating. Um, so good for them. Yeah. Another development is the owner of the 1122 King Road rental house has gifted that property to the University of Idaho. So the university has stated that their intention is to have the house demolished uh, with no set plan as to what's going to happen with the property after it's demolished. Um, also not clear is when this demolition will take place. Um, people are wondering, is it going to be before the trial or after? Uh, the university has said it's going to be demolished as soon as possible. Um, and in reality, there are so many detailed uh, graphic designs of the interior of that house it, and body cam footage and everything else. It might not be necessary for the jury to visit that crime scene, but... Let's play it safe. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I really don't think... Because for trial, you're probably looking at minimum a year, probably two years before there's a trial. I mean, the guy hasn't even entered a plea yet, so... Yeah, they're playing the push game, yeah. and they're doing, an obviously, a very extensive investigation on their own side for their own defense. Yeah. Um. So that can that can go on for so long. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. they might need that house too. So I just I hope they don't so too. demolish it prematurely. Mm -hmm. As of now, like all the windows and doors, everything is boarded up. There's yeah. a chain link fence around the house and there's 24 hour security posted out there. And even now, if you go onto Google Maps and you go to look at that address, the house itself is blurred out. Yeah. So also, since our episode was released, we've heard more from the Pennsylvania police who conducted the search warrant and raid on the Coburg residence at 2 a.m. on December 30th. Um, that's the one that resulted in the arrest of Brian Kohlberger. Um, we've received a list of what was seized during that search warrant. And before we get into that list, we have also been told 
from the police who entered the residence that they found Brian in the kitchen wearing shorts and a shirt and surgical gloves. He had a, a flashlight on him and apparently he was busy separating his personal garbage from his family's garbage and placing it in Ziploc baggies. Yeah, and they weren't even just gloves. They were surgical gloves. Yeah. So creepy. So creepy. In the middle of the night. Like, what are you doing, Brian? <laughs> so remember, <laughs> police reportedly watched Brian walk to a neighbor's bin and take his garbage out one of the nights around 4 a.m. while he was under surveillance in the days leading up to his arrest. So what was in that garbage, I wonder? Just his parents' garbage. He, I think to. he would just throw his parents' garbage out, like... I but don't know. in the neighbor's bin, like it's so bizarre. I know, <laughs> especially if he's meticulously removing his own garbage and putting. I him bet in you. Ziploc bags. So like he's probably he probably thinks he's this like mastermind, mastermind who put layers and layers of protection on his DNA, thinking that not only am I going to take my own stuff out, but just in case of contamination, I'm also going to throw it out into my neighbor's trash bin yeah. and then burn mine or whatever the hell he was doing with his own. Yeah. It just makes me think, though, because he would have been in criminal justice and criminology when, I believe, or close to it anyways, or right after the Golden State Killer was caught, mm -hmm. and he was caught through genealogy DNA testing. So as a student, <laughs> he would know of that possibility, which might be why he was trying to put the family garbage in the neighbor's bin, but... <laughs> Honestly, it's just... It was fresh on the mind. It yeah. is, and it's stupid to me. Just stupid. I don't understand Stupid it. and creepy. <laughs> Very, like, creepy. It's like, could you imagine going through your garbage and taking out all of your little... You're and not guilty just that, if you're doing that. Why are you putting... Why are you using the regular garbage instead of just pocketing your tissues and stuff, taking them to your room and Ziploc bagging them instead of having to go through your family? Yeah, It just... It's weird. It's very weird. So what was taken from Brian's parents' house, um, from his white car, and from Kohlberger himself at the time of the search warrant? So apparently they found a knife, a pocket knife, a Glock 22 handguns with three empty magazines, a cell phone, and a laptop were also seized. There was a ton more. The documents also show that black face masks, black gloves, and many articles of black or dark colored clothing were found. Kohlberger's car, the garage, and a shed on the property were also searched. Um, police took a door panel from the car, along with seat cushions, headrests, seat belts, the visor, um, braking gas pedals, a band-aid, and maps and documents, and other items, including clothing and a shovel. Um, two maybe you buried something? Hmm? Yeah, maybe. Um, remember, he did take that detour down to Colorado. Yeah. Um, there were also some suspicious stops that he made shortly mm -hmm. after the murder out um, in the rural area around yep. Pullman. Um, so you never know. Um, there were also two containers of, quote, unquote, green leafy substance <laughs> um, and a book with underlining on page 118. Um, so this specifically says a book with underlining on page 118. Of course, there's speculation that Papa Roger is Brian Kohlberger. Papa Roger is thought to be named after Elliot Roger, the incel, um, uh, Isla Vista shooter mm -hmm. that happened in 2014. 
Um, so people online are kind of saying, I wonder if this is the manifesto that Elliot wrote. What's on page 118? Every page of that manifesto is disturbing, but page 118 does have some kind of an entry there. So people are speculating maybe this was the entry that was underlined on page 118. My only problem with that is that um, the manifesto was never published into a book. Yeah. Um, and it could be literally any book. Right. And I don't think that they would have called it a book. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, maybe, but I don't, myself, I don't think so. Um, um, also taken was a criminal psychology um, textbook from his car. Um and like I said before, Brian himself had a flashlight on him, he was wearing the shorts and a shirt and surgical gloves while separating his garbage into Ziploc baggies. Also noted on the seizure inventory was, quote, a written letter to his dad. A written letter to his dad. Like, yeah. after sus. spending days in the car driving across the country, <laughs> Brian, for whatever reason, had a written, handwritten letter to his dad. Yeah. Was it like a read and burn or burn after reading type thing or a confession or an apology? Who knows, but interesting. Mm -hmm. um, Obviously, it doesn't put his father in any kind of guilty position or knowing position or else he would have been arrested too. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. We've also recently come to find out that Brian is a model prisoner at the county jail where he is awaiting his next hearing. Reports say that Brian spends a lot of his time watching news coverage of his own case on TV. He's also able to have FaceTime calls with his family, which is disturbing. Horrible. Like, he's just living the life. He has his mm -hmm. own TV, FaceTimes his parents all day, mm -hmm. probably gets a bunch of other stuff that he requests throughout the day mm -hmm. you know especially like um materials if he can make it look like it's materials for his defense mm -hmm. they'll just give it to him so in his area it's the maximum security area of this um jail there's only four pods and he's the only prisoner in there so he's the one that gets to choose what goes on to the tv and he basically has no contact with anybody um even so much as like he's not on suicide watch anymore but um, when he leaves his cell, he doesn't need to be wearing bulletproof vests or anything to protect him because he actually never leaves the building. We've found out that I think he has a wreck time. He can go outside for a half an hour a day or something, but it's literally a concrete slab that he can go out and enjoy the sun if he chooses, or he can go to the basement and attend Sunday Mass, which apparently, from what we've heard now, is what he chooses to do. Yeah. And also in this area uh, where they hold the Sunday Mass, it's also a makeshift library. There's books there. Um, and this is where, like, addictions, counseling, and all that kind of stuff happens, too. So, but yeah, that's, um, I believe that's about it for official updates on the case. Obviously, there's huge speculation and rumors flying around, but I'm not going to waste any time going over any of that. Totally. If there's any other, not if, when there's updates or, or anything happening in this case, we will definitely bring it to you. If it's, if it's noteworthy, I mean, if it's just another bunch of rumors and speculation, probably won't bother, but um, we'll definitely cover this case again in June after those hearings take place and he's entered a plea 
Um, so I think that's about it for Idaho for now. Another case that we've recently covered, the Chapter 3 um, Delphi murders, and also the King and Klein um, episode, I believe, Chapter 5. Um, so the day after the episode went live, we found out that uh, Rick Allen's court dates had been set for June 15th and 16th. Um, so these dates, June 15th is when his um, bond hearing is going to be. He wants to be let out on bond. bond. Yeah. So the second date is scheduled as a closed door hearing. So we're not sure what they're going to go over in that hearing, but for sure on June 15th, unless it gets pushed again, this is where he's going to be presenting evidence as to um, why it's unlikely that he's the right guy and he should be let out on bail until his trial starts. Um, another update that made rounds in the media and on YouTube was a possible connection to an unsolved case in Kentucky of a double homicide. Um, actually, this this connection and speculation is still going around and I thought it was debunked. Basically, the story was on May 29th, 2011, William and Peggy Stevenson were found murdered inside their home located in Florence, Kentucky. A family member discovered their bodies after Bill did not show up for Sunday service at the Truckers Chapel or the services held at Union Baptist Church. Bill Stevenson ran the Truckers Chapel at the Travel America truck stop in Florence for many years. Um, Bill and Peggy Stevenson were both 74 years old at the time of, the, of their deaths. And like the Delphi case, few details have been shared by investigators other than, so we know that the girls' bodies are understood to have been moved and staged and both have lost a lot of blood. It was never specified uh, what any possible link could be, but we know that Bill and Peggy were also uh, supposedly staged and there was a lot of blood loss at that scene as well. So those are the similarities. But. Those are the similarities, but apparently there was an item there that could have been connected to a northern mm -hmm. Indiana man who had ties to the Delphi investigation. So, like I said, media sources, including YouTube and TikTok, ran with the story and speculation ran wild. And I mean, I was guilty of it, too. I thought for sure, because these people were so religious and there was that non-secular reference to the crime scene in Delphi. I thought, there it is. <laughs> There's the connection. Probably took something from the Stevenson and they found it at the Delphi uh, scene. Yeah. And when any information on this one gets released, like people want to run with it because mm -hmm. we're just so desperate for mm -hmm. answers. That's right. We're starving for information on this yeah, one. Yeah. And you sent it to me. And I made the mistake of watch, watching it like while I was doing something else. So like I went full force with it. I was like, no way. Like I believed it right away because like, I couldn't was, catch anything. Yeah, that was the story that was released. I went yeah. back and I looked at what I sent you and that was the original story. So mm -hmm. they 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 were still investigating that that information. That possible thing. Yeah, but as it turns out, there was no connection. So the murder sheet recently released an episode and they played the audio from the phone call they made with that detective that's in charge of the Stevenson investigation. And during the phone call, the detective clearly confirms there's no connection to the Delphi murder investigation. So even going on YouTube today, there are still people saying, what's the connection? These are brand new episodes. It's like, Mm -hmm. they're, it's like they're not going to let it go, which... I or mean, maybe it, they it haven't seen this debunked it, I mean, maybe, information. Maybe. And if they hadn't played the audio 
of the phone call and it was a not cut and you heard the detective say there is no, we looked into something, wasn't directly connected to Delphi, but it was connected to a man who may have been connected to the Delphi investigation. Um, but there is mm-hmm. no, if I didn't hear his voice saying it, it would have just been another one of those murder sheets said that, you know, blah. But it was the detective, Cox, I believe. Yeah. Is his name. So, um, debunked, no connection. That one's done. <laughs> right. Um, now, the Kagan Klein episode that was released um, the next day, I found out that his trial date is set for May 15th and not June, as we stated in the episode. Mm-hmm. Also, that same next day, the prosecution released their witness list for the trial. Um, credit again to the murder sheet and also Tom Webster for identifying all of these people for us. Um, so I'm going to go over that um, that witness list here. So we have uh, David Vito uh, from the Indiana State Police. He wrote the probable cause affidavit on Kagan Klein. Um, he and Jeremy Clinton interviewed uh, Kagan on August 19th of 2020. Um, Brian Bunner from the Indiana State Police. He's actually an instructor of uh, digital forensics, and he's in the cyber crimes division of the ISP. So that's interesting. And then Christopher Cecil from the Indiana State Police. He's the commander of the Indiana Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. Um, Tracy Kunstick from the Indiana State Police. She and FBI Special Agent Andrew Wilman interviewed Kagan Klein on February 25th, 2017. So when his house was first raided, this person is the one that interviewed him. Um, this would be the woman who Kagan said... Um, that lady told me to go home and delete everything right now. So, interesting. Um, so, we've got three more Indiana State Police officers, Josh Maller, Jason Page, and Brian Harshman. Um, Brian Harshman um, is part of the U.S. Marshals Task Force. Um, so, now we've got Jeremy Clinton, who we mentioned earlier. He is a U.S. Marshal. He was the other individual who was in on the August 2020 interrogation of Kagan Klein. So he's also on that witness list. Um, Nicole Robertson, we might recognize her name as the FBI agent who wrote the search warrant affidavit for Ron Logan's property back in March of 2017. Um, apparently, she also works in the child sexual abuse cases, so probably in, is included on this list for that reason, I'm going to assume. Um, Andrew Willman of the FBI, Tiffany Hostetler of the Miami County Sheriff's Department, Tara Holleran, she is a pediatrician who specializes in child abuse issues, Barbara McDonald, uh, the CNN HLN Down the Hill podcast host, and she's also a correspondent for HLN, um, a representative from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, a juvenile, um, Ali Conklin, who was Kagan's girlfriend at the time of his arrest in August of 2020. Was that confirmed? That's confirmed. That's her name. That's what I thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then Derek, or sorry, Dirk Hayes, who is, was Kagan's friend. Um, he is the um, Las Vegas roommate. Um, and also of note, he is the one who Kagan in that interrogation said would be the only other person that had access to his phones. So he's probably being called to dispute 
that information and also to confirm or deny that Kagan lived in Vegas and that timeline as well. Jerry Anthony Klein, Kagan's dad, we know him as Tony. And then we have Vincent Kolowski. He's the individual whose photos were stolen and used by Kagan Klein on that Anthony Schatz account. Remember now, he is a police officer in Alaska, um, but he used to be a Instagram model. And then the last entry here is any later discovered witnesses whose names will be provided to counsel for the defendant immediately upon discovery. So also this morning, we got word that Kagan Klein's attorneys have entered a motion to lift pretrial conference and jury trial and schedule for a change of plea hearing. So Kagan is changing his plea. Right now we know he's pleading not guilty. Um, so this definitely says that he is changing his plea. Um, we don't know the date. Um, I was okay. hoping it would be out by the time we did this recording, but it's not. Um, watch our Facebook page. We'll definitely update that here because that will be known probably within the next couple of days. Um, but again, that'll be very interesting. If he pleads guilty a deal to or those charges, then maybe a deal has been made. Um, it would be interesting to see what kind of time he gets for those atrocious crimes. Um, anyway, it's very interesting, and we'll keep you posted. So definitely watch the Facebook page, mm -hmm. and we try our best to do updates there. We'll update our Facebook page, but we'll also update our podcast probably within the week of the new information anyway, and as soon as possible, honestly, within a couple of days. These update episodes, you know, we can definitely pop these out as soon as we get new information, as long as it's, um, as long as it's enough mm -hmm. as to long create as that. Yeah. And as long as it's factual information, there's yeah. nothing wrong with releasing a, like a six minute episode or something just to kind of go over the update. For small updates, definitely go to the Facebook, though. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much it for now. I'm Bree. And I'm Char. And we'll see you on the next chapter. Bye. Bye.